Hey friends, and welcome to episode 132 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to remind you about an upcoming course that we have on a theology of the sexes. That course will be taught by Alistair Roberts and Peter Lightheart and will be from March 12th through the 16th here in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information about that course, you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, go to events and click on courses. We also wanted to make you aware of a couple of recent articles on our website that you may find useful. One is from our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan, on bread and cup. There, Jordan's going to suggest that the cup of the Lord's Supper corresponds to the firmament between heaven and earth and digs further into those details. Also, just yesterday, we posted an article on worship as ordination by Bill Smith that you'll really be sharpened by as well. In this week's episode, we have Peter Lightheart discussing the text for the third Sunday in the Lenten season. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. And today we're looking at the readings for the third Sunday in the Lenten season. Uh, in 2018, those readings are Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31, and John 2, verses 13 to 22. And uh, we'll start with the Old Testament lesson, which is uh, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, uh, as they're called in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and uh, this is, a, 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 I suppose, a Lenten reading because it's a standard of self-evaluation and self-examination. Um, the Ten Commandments are uh, given to us as a guide uh, for life. It's not just a matter of driving us to repentance. The, the law is not given simply as something that's supposed to drive us to seek the grace of God. In fact, the Ten Commandments are given to a redeemed people. Uh, the law is given to people who have been rescued from Pharaoh and has have been brought into uh, brought to Mount Sinai and are entering into covenant with the Lord. And uh, the uh, the Torah, the instruction of the Lord, is given in order to guide them in the way that they're supposed to live in relationship in, uh, to Yahweh and under His lordship. Um, but still, the Ten Commandments do play the function of being a standard to uh, to test and judge and to evaluate ourselves and to do the uh, uh, self-examination that is uh, appropriate at all times, but uh, is particularly the focus, uh, one of the focal points of the Lenten season. There are several, uh, all kinds of things one could say about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Uh, I want to highlight a couple of things that are, I think are uh, helpful to see. Um, one point comes from John Frame, who uh, uses the Ten Commandments as perspectives uh, on the whole of Christian ethics. Frame uses the word perspective in a particular way. By perspective, he means an angle of vision on the whole of a topic. So a perspective is not just a, a slice of something, but it's uh, uh, in a, a way of viewing the, the whole of it but from one particular viewpoint. 
So, for example, you could write a book of theology that's entirely from the viewpoint of Christology. You could begin with the person of Christ and uh, everything about the Old Testament covenants, everything about, obviously, about the, the gospel story, everything about what happens after Jesus ascends. The church could be seen as a Christological reality. Uh, eschatology could be understood Christologically. So you could use or use Christology as the lens through which to look at everything. But you could do the same thing with pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit. You could do the same thing with eschatology. So for frame, you can take any one of these topics of theology, and it, it can become the lens for looking at the whole. And he argues that the Ten Commandments function that way, and it, this can be an illuminating way to think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, you take each one of the commandments, and you think about how each of those commandments sheds light on the others. So the first commandment is a commandment to have no other gods before the Lord, uh, to worship the Lord only. Well, uh, that's that's related to other commandments. Uh, we're also told, thou shalt not murder, uh, is uh, idolatry, not worshiping the true God, a, a form of murder. Does that make sense? Or can we say that murder is a form of idolatry? It's an assault on the image of God as Genesis points out. So you can see a connection between those two commandments. Each of them sheds light on the other. Uh, God tells us that we should have no other gods before him. He also says, do not commit adultery. There's a connection between those two. Uh, idolatry is a form of spiritual adultery, and that opens up new ways of thinking about it. Uh, idolatry. You can also think about adultery as having aspects of idolatry connected to it. So again, these two commandments uh, shed light on each other they provide perspectives on each other thou shalt not steal is a perspective on the first commandment because when we rob god of his glory when we don't worship god we're robbing him of his glory we're not uh we're we're we're, uh, stealing from god as it were we're committing a kind of sacrilege and taking something that belongs to god and using it for our own our own purposes so you can do that uh you can Take any combination of commandments and use each of them to shed light on the others, and it opens up new ways of thinking about the commandments. And then um, Frame does this at some length in his uh, Doctrine of the Christian Life, and I find it a very helpful way to to open up again new new uh, angles and uh, ways of thinking about the uh, about ethics and about our responsibilities before God and about the Torah. Uh, the other point is to uh, highlight again the, uh, as I alluded to this a moment ago, but to highlight again the the integration of law and gospel. Um, in in some Christian traditions, law and gospel are set in contrast, stark contrast to each other. Certain passages are law and are designed to uh, drive us to Christ and to seek uh, seek mercy from God. Other passages are gospel; they include promises. But uh, they're, in the Bible itself, those two categories really are not opposed like that. Uh, as I've already said, the law is given to people who have been redeemed, who have already been rescued from Egypt. Uh, so this is a guide for life to those who have been saved. It's not a way of getting saved. It's not a good way of getting into the good graces of God, but it's an, uh, a way of living before the God who has already shown you grace. Uh, and then you can extend that kind of logic to some of the specific commandments. Again, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, as Luther says in his shorter catechism. Uh, we should. Uh, what that means is that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. 
That's the way of keeping uh, the first commandment. Well, if we fear, love, and trust in God above all things, uh, that's a commandment to do what the gospel calls us to do, which is trust in God and God alone for everything, for our ultimate destiny and for everything before our ultimate destiny. So the commandment is actually uh, giving us the same, uh, it's, it's pointing us in the same direction as the gospel does. The commandment says, trust God alone, and the gospel calls us to trust God alone. Um, the rest of the commandments, we can also see in, 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 in that light that the, uh, the commandments are just the outworking of the gospel. This is, there's, no, there's no contradiction here. I don't think there's really even any tension between the two. Uh, certain uses of the law are contrary to the gospel. The law, uh, Torah, as a system of worship and life that involved all of the purity laws and all the sacrificial laws, that Torah in that sense has come to an end. It's been fulfilled in Christ. But it's been fulfilled in Christ in such a way that we now keep the law in a, uh, in a fulfilled manner. We keep the law that is in a way that surpasses the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, as, as Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, even, uh, even though the law is discontinued in some respects, uh, there's still no contradiction between God's revelation of the Torah and the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no uh, conflict there fundamentally. God saves us in order to be obedient and live before him. Our living before him, our trust in him, is a response both to his promise and to his commandment. It's a response to the word of God. So um, uh, try preaching that to your to your church this Sunday and see see how they react when you tell them that uh, law and gospel are not opposed to each other. See how, uh, those of you who are pastors, try that on for size with your churches. I was always taken aback by obedience of faith in Romans one uh, phrases like that that Paul used. Right. That yeah, very good, very good example. And that, that's a that's a phrase that that brackets the whole uh, letter of, of Romans, letter to the Romans, and that's the whole point of Paul's ministry. He says his whole ministry as an apostle as uh, somebody who's an ambassador for Jesus Christ and for the gospel, is to bring about the obedience of faith uh, among the Gentiles. Our epistle reading for uh, this third Sunday in Lent is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. Uh, this is, uh, of course, the, Corinthian, the first letter to the Corinthians is addressing a number of the problems that the Corinthian churches are facing, the divisions among the Corinthians. One of the divisions is the division between those who consider themselves superior, the wise, and those who are lesser, uh, the division between those who are in the know, the, uh, those who have possessed some kind of secret uh, knowledge and those who don't. It's kind of an early form of Gnosticism that seems to be infecting the Corinthian church. And Paul's answer to that is to um, uh, uh, complicate that division between wisdom and folly. Uh, that's a that's a distinction that we find in the uh, in the scriptures. It's a distinction that the proverbs highlight: um, pursue wisdom, renounce folly. Uh, but in the gospel, that those categories are disturbed and uh, are uh, complicated. Uh, Jesus comes uh, as an expression of uh, the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption from God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Uh, 
but he comes in a way that undermines uh, settled conceptions of wisdom. What he does doesn't look like wisdom. It doesn't look like wisdom to the Greek mind. Uh, it doesn't look like wisdom to the Jewish mindset. Uh, Jews seek for signs. Greeks seek for wisdom. Jews are looking for acts of power. Greeks are looking for wisdom. And in from that perspective, Jesus looks like uh, weakness and folly. Uh, and Paul, instead of instead of really rejecting that, Paul kind of embraces those categories and he says, yes, this is the foolishness of God is revealed in Jesus, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God undermines the wisdom of men and 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 uh, reveals a, a a deeper wisdom uh, that uh, that is uh, uh, evident in the cross. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, Jesus is the as I said last week in talking about uh, Mark. Jesus is the strong man above all when he goes to the cross, when he becomes weak and gives himself up for the sake of his people. That's when he shows his strength most profoundly and most thoroughly uh, is when he's uh, when he appears to be weak so um, uh, uh, the cross the cross is a uh, a uh, a judgment um, against human human wisdom against human strength uh, and it displays to us instead the the weakness of God which is true strength and the folly of God which is true wisdom uh, the the gospel reading for this Sunday is uh, from John chapter two. It's the latter half of that chapter, uh, and it's the account of Jesus casting out the money changers from the temple. One of the uh, puzzles of trying to harmonize the gospels is how to fit this account of the cleansing of the temple or the the, the Jesus temple temple act, uh, as is, as scholars now like to call it. Uh, how to fit that, how to harmonize John's account with the, with the account in the synoptics. Uh, the first three Gospels all indicate that Jesus uh, goes into the temple, overturns the money changers, the tables of the money changers, and rebukes them uh, after he's come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He, makes it, he comes into Jerusalem as a triumphant king, and he immediately goes into the temple, and he uh, does this uh, demonstration in the temple. Uh, that's toward the end of Jesus' life, at the beginning of the final week of his life, it seems. But here in John, uh, the, that event is recorded right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the question is, is this the same event uh, that John has put out of chronological order? Uh, he's put it at the beginning of his gospel for thematic reasons rather than for chronological reasons. Uh, or is this a separate event? Did Jesus go into the temple uh, near the beginning of his ministry, um, cast out the money changers and uh, and then come back at the end of his ministry and do the same thing. I'm not sure exactly how to resolve that, but uh, I, it wouldn't be out of out of keeping with uh, the the shape of Jesus' ministry for him to have two temple demonstrations. In Mark, actually, we have two visits to the temple. Jesus comes into the temple initially when he first comes into Jerusalem, and he looks around. Then he leaves and returns the next day, and then he performs his temple act. He rebukes them for turning the house uh, t- for uh, uh, for undermining the temple as a house of prayer for all nations, and for turning it into a den of brig- brigands, for den- into a den of thieves. 
So there are two different two different uh, entries into the temple in Mark's account. Uh, Jesus is coming in first of all as the inspecting priest. He comes the next day to pronounce judgment against this infected house. He's following something like the procedure that you find in Leviticus 13 and 14 concerning the uh, the unclean house, the the leprous house. The priest comes in and inspects. He leaves. He comes back later, and if the infection is still there, then the house has to be dismantled so that not one not one stone is left on another. Uh, that's compressed into uh, just two days in Mark's gospel, but it would be uh, fitting at least if Jesus had entered into the temple twice, one at the beginning of his ministry, uh, called Israel to repentance by overturning the tables of the money changers at the beginning of his ministry, comes back a couple years later, finds the house still infected with this leprosy, and uh, then pronounce a final judgment of doom against the temple. Those, uh, that, that sequence of events makes sense. That's what, that would be one way to harmonize the two. Uh, harmonize John's account with the uh, with the synoptics, and that that I think is a, at least a plausible way to to, to handle it. Uh, Jesus is uh, enacting a temple destruction, as N.T. Wright says, overturning the money changers and interrupting the temple services by this demonstration. That's a, a, a small sign of what the Romans are going to later do to the temple when they uh, they'll overturn all of the tables in the temple. They'll bring a permanent end to the sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus is giving them a small glimpse of what's going to happen in the future. Um, A regular question about uh, whether Jesus is focusing his attention on the abuses of the economic abuses that are taking place in the temple. That does seem to be the focus uh, in John's account. Jesus pours out the coins of the money changers. He overturns their tables. He tells them, uh, that they should stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Um, that that seems to that that focuses attention not just on general abuses in the temple, but specifically on economic abuses in the temple. Um, and uh, you know, there's some perhaps some evidence that uh, the temple authorities were cheating people when they were exchanging things for uh, changing money for sacrificial animals. I think the broader point is that the temple was a site of uh, all kinds of economic corruption and injustices. Uh, Nick Perrin, in a book on Jesus the Priest, uh, has uh, extensive evidence about the economic abuses of the temple system. The, the, the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was basically the bank of ancient, ancient Israel. Uh, the priests were wealthy landowners. The priesthood as a whole was a wealthy landowning uh, class. Uh, and uh, the the priests of the first century had uh, uh, set up a system of banking and loans that uh, they used to their advantage. Uh, they'd loan out loans at high interest, uh, foreclose when those loans were not repay, repaid, and then take the lands that they recovered in those foreclosures, make them part of the temple lands. They were now, uh, in quotes, dedicated to the Lord. They couldn't. They couldn't be. Uh, Alienated, but of course they were, practically speaking, they were under the control of the priests. So the priests were con- increasing their uh, landed properties through these uh, various various uh, uh, oppressive mechanisms. And Jesus is, I think, uh, uh, targeting those abuses among other things when he tells the tells the uh, temple authorities to stop making his father's house a house of merchandising. Uh, of course, Jesus is also 
introducing a new temple obliquely. He says that uh, uh, he, he alludes to a temple destruction, uh, but he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. There's this double uh, sense to the, to the temple. He is announcing and enacting a temple destruction, the destruction of the house. But of course, he's pointing ahead to the destruction of his, uh, of his body, as John informs us. Uh, and that temple, the temple of his body, the residence of the spirit is going to be destroyed, and then in three days he's going to raise it back up again. That's the that'll be the final sign that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John, and then his body will become uh, the site that will become the house of prayer for all nations. That will become the place of true sacrifice. Uh, those who are united to Jesus will be those who have access to God and uh, can offer a true sacrifice of praise to Him. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.